All right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 77. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 7, uh, as well as Psalm 35, and then we'll finish up with Luke chapter 21, verses, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. We're not moving quite that fast. All right, so um, Numbers chapter 7 uh, is... Uh, a has uh, something pretty interesting in the beginning of it, and that is, uh, so it starts on the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils. Um, so if you ask when that when that is, right, so that's a temporal designation, when did that happen? Well, it uh, actually happened in Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. Um and so, interestingly, what we have here is a little bit of a dischronology. Uh, we see that the, some of the material that we are um, given here in the book of Numbers uh, does not uh, occur uh, in perfect succession in terms of like when it actually happened, but it seems to be arranged topically, at least to some extent. Um, so, again, uh, it, this actually happened. Moses finishes all this work. In, at the end of the book of Exodus. Uh, and the date there that is given for that is it's the first day of the first month of the second year. So, Happy New Year. The tabernacle is completed. Um, and then if you note, when Numbers begins, right? So you get Leviticus and then you get Numbers. And Numbers begins a month after that, a month after the uh, the tabernacle. So Numbers 1.1 places uh you know, it places its time in, in the first day of the second month of the second year. So, in other words, Numbers begins in the second month, uh, but now here in chapter 7, it's telling us about something that happened in the first month. So, just an interesting thing to note there. Now, basically what's going on in this chapter is the heads of each tribe, okay, and uh, the heads of each tribe are uh, are mentioned in chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, uh, these are the guys who are, they're called the chiefs. Uh, they represent uh, all all uh, 12 of the tribes of Israel, uh, with the exception of the tribe of Levi, right? Because when you're counting, you've got the two, tri- two half tribes for Joseph. So that technically makes 13 tribes. It's, it's, it's 11 plus two half tribes. Um, and, um, but because the Levites are uh, not a part of, of this, uh, you have 12 of them. But at any rate, you have these guys are appointed to bring uh, what are uh, voluntary offerings. They're not required, but they they bring them of their own free will uh, to assist the Levites in their duties. So what is brought uh, is a total of six wagons and 12 oxen, uh, a, a wagon for every two chiefs and a oxen for every chief. And these are given to the Levites, and we actually see what these are for. Uh, we're not—it's not—we're to- not told directly, but um, indirectly, we're told in verse nine. So the the wagons are given to the um, to the Levites, uh, but to and they're given to the uh, the Gershonites and the Morarites. Okay, those of the clan of Gershon and of and then of the clan of Morari. But then verse nine tells us that. To the sons of Kohath, he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. 
Okay, so what's going on here is that these are wagons and oxen that the Levites are to use to place their respective parts of the tabernacle into when the camp of Israel moves throughout the wilderness. And uh, and the Kohathites can't play, are not able to be to, to use these things. They, these wouldn't be good, any good for them because the holy things specifically are built with um, thing, uh, inserts for poles to go through so that they can be carried on the shoulder because they're to be treated differently. And these would be these would be the holy furniture. Um, everything in the descriptions uh, when when they were constructed that is said to have loops for holes, and that that would be the altars, the ark of the covenant, of course, um, and you know other. Uh, the table, uh, things like that. So they're for carrying these things through the wilderness and each tribe gives of their own free will uh, for uh, for this purpose. Uh, and then the rest of the chapter uh, it, it concerns other offerings that the chiefs brought forward. And we see what this is at, down in verse 88. Um, and all the cattle... Uh, for the sacrifice of the peace offerings, 24 bulls, the ram 60s, male goat 60s, etc., etc. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. So the de- so the altar is anointed by Moses. Um, that is, it receives its initial consecration and, um, and appointment for the purpose of this ministry. And then the, uh, the, these animals are donated, uh, in order uh, for 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 a dedication all offering again a free will thing, um, what is brought is uh, first of all some grain offerings and those are going to be carried in a silver plate as well as a silver basin. You're given the weight of each of those one uh, 130 and 70 shekels respectively, as well as a gold dish of 10 shekels in weight, um, holding incense and then a bunch of animals a bull a ram. Um, And then uh, a male lamb, one-year-old, for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, uh, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs, a year old, for the peace offering. Notice how much more the peace offering, uh, how many more animals are brought for peace offerings here. And uh, that's essentially what's going on in this chapter. Each each, uh, tribe contributing willfully uh, and generously to the... Uh, to this uh, consecration ceremony of the of the altar, and then um, at the very end of chapter eight, we're told that Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with Yahweh, and of course, that is um, this is a place in which he receives revelation. He heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. And then tomorrow um, we will read about what it what the Lord spoke to Moses there. Um, okay, that's it for the book of Numbers today. Let's go ahead and look at Psalm 35. All right, so Psalm 35 is a psalm of David, and uh, this is a psalm of um, appealing to God for salvation against his enemies. Uh, David obviously has a bunch of psalms like this, um, and a bunch of really helpful imagery for just uh, contributing to our understanding of our relationship with God in this psalm. So the initial appeal appeal is, Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. And uh, and then we start getting all this 
this imagery, take hold of shield and buckler. Uh, a buckler, for those who don't know, is like a little small shield. It's a much smaller shield that one holds, uh, easier to move around. Um, rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin. Notice these, right? God's not literally holding a shield and a buckler and a spear and a javelin, but um, but this is uh, this is describing how God will act in David's favor um, through his sovereign power against his against David's enemies. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. I am your salvation. Um, notice all the salvation talk we've been seeing in Luke. Um, I always do think it's very important to note how Jesus really takes the role of what God does um, in the uh, in the Old Testament. So, who to whom does David look for salvation? The Lord. Um, to whom are we told to look for salvation in the New Testament? Jesus. And this is just one of the many ways in which the New Testament portrays Jesus as indeed one with the Father. Um, at any rate, uh, after this, in verses four through eight, we get an imprecation. Okay, this this uh, let the, this prayer for God's justice against his adversaries. Um, and again, this is not totally mutually exclusive towards the Lord moving their hearts to repent, to trust Him, to become a worshiper of the Lord alongside of David. Um, but this is part of the way in which we pray for. Um, uh, in which we pray regarding um, those who do evil in this world. We do pray for them to uh, be turned to Christ, for them to repent. Uh, but we also do pray for God's justice against them. And this is this is part of, of what it of, of a legitimate expression of prayer and hope to God, uh, this prayer for justice. And so let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of Yahweh driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. Um, and then you get this idea that you encounter in a bunch of Psalms and, and a bit, and you also see this, uh, we, we saw this in Job a little bit, you see it in Proverbs, this idea that the, that what they purpose to do against me, let that actually happen to them. So without cause, they hid a net for me, without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Uh, let the net that he hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction. Uh, this idea like, you know, he dug a hole and, and put a, a net over it and, and I, he wants me to fall into it. Let that happen to him. So this idea that um, this, this fitting retribution where, where the evil intended towards the servant of the Lord is uh, returned on his own head. Um, but, uh, but notice too that uh, this is not just a, a psalm of imprecation, but it's also um, David expressing his attitude towards the Lord, his attitude of praise and rejoicing in him. Uh, then my soul will rejoice in Yahweh, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Yahweh, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong from him and for him, and uh, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Um, I like how David applies this psalm, uh, I mean, to himself in some respect. Um, at this point, of course, in his life, he is 
kind of poor. He's he's assuming this is before his kingship. Um, he's he's certainly doesn't seem to have a ton of material possessions at this point. Certainly not like he will when he's king. But the language here obviously um, appeals to those who who are in that situation. Right? This isn't just like a super privileged. This isn't just super privileged royalty, right? He he cries to him from his poverty, and so those who who are not king can join with David in this psalm uh, as long as they they know the Lord, um, in, in in praying the words of these psalms. Um, then, of course, it, it talks more about uh, what they um, what what these people have been up to, why he feels this way. Uh, they are malicious witnesses against him. Um, they repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft, but, but I, when, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. So this is someone whom he knows, whom he cares for, who has now risen up against him. Um, I went about as though I grieved for a friend or my brother as one laments for his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But then at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. So now there's there's others involved in this as well, like profane mockers at a feast. At a feast, they gash, they gnash at me with their teeth. Um, and so then another appeal to the Lord: How long, O Lord? Notice there that's Lord, not Yahweh. It is not in all capitals. That's verse seventeen. Um, uh, rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions, um, and I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. So David sees his his way of thanking the Lord as as praising him in the presence of others, um, that like contributing that to the worshiping community, com- contributing the testimony of what the Lord has done um, is itself this this thanks that we that we give the lord for acting on our behalf um so yeah uh that's essentially the tenor of this psalm the other thing i just want to want to point out here is this idea of uh that we see in verses 22 through 25 this idea of god don't be silent but vindicate me um do this according to your righteousness um but then also then in verse 27 um, let those who delight in my righteousness, right? The fact that, and this, this isn't kind of like a, a haughty self pride or something. This is the idea that he has been, uh, faithful to what God has called him to. And, and those who are glad about that, okay. Those who, those who are glad, who look to David and see his example and say, we delight in that. We delight in somebody following the Lord and, and this man following the Lord. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is Yahweh who delights in the welfare of his servant. And again, the way in which God is repaid, so to speak, obviously there's no way we could truly repay God, but uh, the way in which we, the proper fitting response to God working is my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So again, it is the contribution to the worshiping community of this truth about God and his deliverance. Okay, let's go now to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. Um, Jesus, as we saw yesterday, has been born. 
and um, the shepherds um, have returned, glorifying God. And now here in verse 21, he is eight days old. And and just as we saw with John the Baptist, um, he was circumcised. And uh, at that time, as we saw that John the Baptist, that is the time of the naming of the child. And his name, the name given to him, of course, is Jesus. Um, And Luke notes that that is the name that was given to him by the angel when he was conceived, before he was conceived in the womb. Um, Then uh, Jesus is presented at the temple, uh, the time for purification. Uh, This is referring to what we read back in Leviticus 12, the idea that when a woman gives birth to a a male child, there's a period of uncleanliness and then a a purification offering, a a sin offering, uh, right? An offering of atonement that must be made. And... um, and and also the other thing that this connects us with is the notion that uh, Jesus is um, the firstborn who opens the womb, and we saw how the firstborn is uh, holy to the Lord. Of course, they are replaced by the tribe of Levi, but they still are presented before the Lord um, in an acknowledgement of that. And now, interestingly, the thing that they bring as the offering here is uh, two tur—it uh, says, according to the Lord, a pair of two of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's actually a reference to Leviticus 12.8, where that is specified as the offering that could be made if a family is too poor to present a lamb, uh, okay, for a sin offering. Instead, you bring these two birds, and one is offered as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. So, again, attesting to Jesus' very humble um, and, and, frankly, poor upbringing. Um, uh, The other thing that I'll note here, and I noted this back then as an example of this principle, that uh, we we shouldn't get um, uh, thrown off track here by the concept of sin offering, uncleanness, and things like that. So the concept of uncleanness does not necessarily mean sinfulness. In fact, often in the ritual legislation of Leviticus, it does not. Okay, it's there are various reasons why things are made unclean, um, and uh, and sin is of course one of them. But there are a lot of other reasons besides sin that renders one in need of ritual purification. Um, and the way in which you ritually purify something is with the offering that is called a sin offering. But again, it's more sin in the sense that we saw yesterday, where it's all sin kind of going off the mark, missing the mark in that sense. And that's why it's those offerings, those purification offerings are called sin offerings, because they deal with the contamination that happens as a result of any reason why you might go off the mark. And the, the key example of this idea that uncleanness does not necessarily equal sinfulness, a prime example is this right here, right? Here, the Son of God, the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ himself, the one who is one with the Father is is born, and still this offering must be made. It's, it's not as if Mary has sinned by giving birth to Jesus or something like that. Instead, we are dealing with uh, ritual uh, legislation. Um, now, when he's there, uh, when they're there, they encounter a man named Simeon, and Simeon is described as righteous. He's described as devout. He's described as waiting for the consolation of Israel. So you have these holy people who are kind of like just hanging out at the temple, um, and uh, the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that before he died, he would see the Lord's Christ. And when 
he does, um, of course, see Jesus. He recognizes him, um, and he says, and he he gives this little poem. Notice how many of these poems are counting at the be- are are occurring at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, uh, in celebration of Jesus's birth. Um, uh, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. There it is again, salvation. Uh, Remember, mentioned in chapter 1, verses 71 and 77, connected with the Lord's Christ. Um, This connection between Christ and salvation here, very prominent in these these early um, uh, narratives in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, and, uh, you also see here is the, um, the missionary aspect of the coming of Jesus, right? That yes, it is here for um, for Israel. Okay, that Jesus does come for Israel, like at the end of the Magnificat of Mary's poem in uh, chapter one, verse fifty-four. He has helped his servant Israel, okay, as he spoke to her fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever, right? But not only that, but a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So this anticipation that the Gentiles will be brought in. And of course, this does become a very important theme in Luke. Luke, after all, is the one who writes the book of Acts. And a lot of the book of Acts deals with how the Spirit brings salvation to Gentiles as well. Uh, So we see that here. Uh, The other person whom we... um, uh, Oh, okay. One more thing on Simeon, actually. He, He goes to Mary and he says, behold... This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Remember the these themes from Mary's poem, uh, that the Lord brings the prideful low and he raises the humble up. Um, I think that's what's going on here. And, as a, and for a sign that is opposed. Okay, so this idea that there is going to be a, a, a moment of decision here that attends to Jesus's coming, to the ushering in of the kingdom of God, um, that that it will come with conflict, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Um, it's a little ambiguous what exactly he means there, but um, this idea that something painful is going to happen to you, Mary, um, as a result of, of uh, the coming of the Christ into the world— um, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And then there's a uh, there's also an, a, a woman who is there, not just Simeon, but a woman named Anna. And uh, she is described she is also um, a, a, a righteous woman who hangs out in the temple. and uh, and she is uh, uh, described as a prophetess, so someone who actually speaks and can speak in the name of God. And uh, she had been married for seven years, it's explained, when she was young, since she was a virgin. But she's widowed. Now she's 84 years old. So something like like 60 years or so have transpired now where she has now lived as a widow. And uh, it says she does not she does not depart from the temple. She just stays there worshiping the Lord and fasting and in prayer night and day. And um, and and she also. Uh, welcomes Jesus. Um, and as we read in verse 38, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Then uh, today's reading ends where they've performed everything according to the law of the Lord, and they return to Galilee, uh, to the town of Nazareth. And it says that the child grew, and he became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. All right, well, that's uh, that's it for today, and uh, uh, thank you for joining me. I very much look forward to tomorrow with you. Until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.